Well, amen. Thank you, Chaz, and worship team for leading us in that way. Thank you. Good morning, Hallows Church. Uh, it's good to see you this morning in Walling for two weeks in a row back to back. That's kind of rare for me, but it is a treat to again be here uh, to lead us through our study of the scriptures today as we continue our journey through the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 12. We've had, <clears throat> we've had some challenging teachings really coming from Jesus here in Luke chapter 12, and I have to admit that today is, is no exception. We find ourselves in another hard passage but I would also say that in many ways it, it can be an encouraging and hopeful passage, and it's definitely a very practical passage, too. So let me invite you to open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 12, or right here in the middle of the chapter. <clears throat> and it's a long passage today, 21 verses, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34, and we'll kind of work our way through it as we, as we go. And as you get to the end of this very long passage in verse 31... Jesus, he kind of sums up the passage for us. And so I'd like to kind of give that away ahead of time to you and then kind of work our way in that direction to see how we, how we get there, how we, how we get there. Um, so here's, here's what Jesus says in verse 31. He says, seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom of God, and, and if you do, and as you do, your heavenly Father will delight to give you Everything that you need in this life. And so, seeking the kingdom of God. That's what this passage is about today. Jesus says you should be doing it. He says I should be doing it. So, so are you doing it? And am I doing it? I think most of us would say, well, I, I think so. I hope so. But what does that look like? What does it mean? What should our lives look like and be like as Christians if we're for truly seeking the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to remind us here in this passage of exactly that. And it is very good for us to be reminded of that because it is, if, uh, if we're going to be honest, we, we kind of drift as Christians, don't we? Often without even realizing it. And if we're not careful, we kind of drift away from seeking the kingdom of God toward instead seeking the kingdom of self. I'm afraid that is the default tendency, the default pull of the fallen human heart, in fact. And I think this may be why the first thing Jesus begins teaching here in this passage in verses 13 to 21 is that seeking the kingdom of God and seeking the kingdom of self, they, they don't go very well together. In fact, what we're going to see in the opening verses here is that seeking the kingdom of God actually requires a certain sacrifice of the self, a sacrifice of your own personal kingdom, of your earthly kingdom that you and I continually construct in our lives. So let's get, get going by looking at verses 13 to 21 as we begin exploring this passage. Verse 13, someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide up the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him. Who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll 
tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have, done, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So a question is posed to Jesus here about money and possessions. And Jesus is going to use the the rest of this long passage to, to teach us something about how God sees these things. And about how we should see them and and relate to them too. And you just heard it. The first thing Jesus does is he kind of issues a warning, right? He says, watch out. Watch out for greed. He says in verse 15, guard against all forms of it, he says. Now, according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, greed is defined as a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. Such as money, it says, such as, not only money. Many people are greedy for money, but you can be greedy for all sorts of things in in this life, right? But Jesus talks more about money and greed than he talks about heaven and hell combined. One estimate is that 15% of what Jesus had to say when he was on this earth had to do with with money and with our, our dangerous love of it. But the funny thing is, we don't, really, we don't really talk about money and greed among ourselves much, do we? I've been involved in pastoral ministry now for almost 10 years, and I can't believe I'm saying that, and it's been quite a journey, but, but that is the case. And along the way, I've, I've had people come to me, and they want to talk to me about their sins and their uh, struggles. They might want to talk to me about uh, their anger or their bitterness or their lust, these, these sorts of things. They may want to confess it to me. They may want to pray about it with me. And these are good things. These are fine things. But I don't think I've ever had anybody come to me to confess their sin of greed. Nobody has ever come to me and said, Jeff, can you help me? I'm I'm materialistic. Maybe that's why Jesus used the phrase, watch out here. He doesn't really use that phrase with other sins. With other sins, he says, don't do them or flee from them. But but he doesn't really say, watch out. After all, with most sins, I think you kind of know when you're doing them, right? You know when you're lying. You know when you're lusting. You know when you've lost your temper. But with greed, it's different. It kind of hides itself, right? I think that's why Jesus says, pay attention, watch for it, or you're going to miss it. But part of the problem, I'm afraid, is that many of us, we, we want to miss it. The truth is, most of us sitting here in this room this morning probably have not seriously considered in recent months or recent years the possibility that you're a greedy person living a greedy life with, with all that God has given to you. We don't really see it in ourselves because, because we don't want to see it, so we don't look and we don't, we don't ask questions. But today, Jesus is going to ask ask some questions. Perhaps part of the reason that we don't think greed applies to us is that there's always people around us who have more than us and, and spend more than us, right? 
We all have friends and families and colleagues who are far more extravagant with their money than we are. And that's all it really takes a lot of the time. All you need to do is know some people who are more greedy than you are to convince yourself that, that you're not. And I'd go so far as to say that if you're sitting here in this room today and you're thinking to yourself that this is not a problem for me, I'm not a greedy person, that's a very bad sign. One of the symptoms of greed, in fact, is that you don't think it's true about you. Jesus says, don't be naive, don't lie to yourself, be aware of it, and be on guard against it. The honest truth is that every one of us sitting here in this room today, myself included, at, at the top of the list, could be and probably should be more generous with, with what we have. And so in a very real way, the real question here is not, are you greedy, but how greedy are you? How greedy am I? And are we willing to do anything about it? beginning today. I know I intend to because this passage has been kicking my butt this week. And I hope you'll allow it to kick yours too as we go because sometimes we need it. After warning us against greed, Jesus then tells a parable about greed. It's a parable about a guy who did pretty well in his life. His land was productive and and so he thought to himself, this is great, I can really cash in. And so he builds uh, more barns, he builds bigger barns, he, he expands the operation and he begins storing up more and more wealth for himself. This man managed to build an impressive personal kingdom for himself over which he was happily ruling and reigning. And he felt stable and secure in his kingdom and the future looked very bright. Verse 19, look at it again. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. That was my hope and my dream for most of my life before meeting Jesus, to reach a point where I could say that to myself and, and about myself. Take it easy, Jeff. Live it up. You've earned it. That's kind of the American dream, isn't it? And to be completely honest, there's still a part of me, a small part of me, a certain selfish part of me that still tries to tell me that's what I want. I'm getting up there in age a bit. I can picture it now. More fishing, more golfing, more happy hours, more naps. I love naps. But friends, there's a bigger part of me that can't imagine doing that at all anymore. And the crazy thing is, I could be doing that right now. But instead, I'm doing this right now. Willingly. <laughs> joyfully. Not begrudgingly at all. Why? Because God has graciously, graciously shown me in my life the, the emptiness of me seeking to build my own kingdom and to, to be my own king. He's shown me the tragedy of, of living out the rest of my life and wasting the rest of my life, focusing on my life and myself, and I am grateful that he did. What does God say to the person who is focused on storing up treasures so that he can take it easy and enjoy his life? 
God says and Jesus says in verse 20, he says, you're a fool. You fool. You're not being rich toward God, Jesus says. And Jesus is also going to say in the next part of this passage that if, if that's your approach to life, building your own kingdom like that, it will catch up to you eventually. The kingdom of self, it can only remain standing for, for so long. This, I think, is why Jesus next starts talking about the sort of unstable and insecure life that comes to a person who is building a kingdom of self. But he's also going to talk about how when you and I are thinking rightly about God, when we're focused on seeking and building his kingdom rather than our own, there's a certain confidence and contentment that is available to each one of us as followers of Jesus. Let's take a look at verses 22 to 30. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap, they don't have a storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than birds? Can any one of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying. If then you are not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider the, how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Jesus is going to show us here how uh, seeking the kingdom of God involves not only sacrificing your own earthly kingdom. It also involves surrendering something too. It involves surrendering control of your life or more specifically surrendering the illusion of control that you think you have over your life. Jesus said, don't worry, verse 22. Don't be anxious, verse 25. Why worry, verse 26, don't be anxious, verse 29, four times in nine verses. But how can Jesus command us not to be anxious? Who wants to be anxious anyways? Did any of you get up this morning and say, I'm going to be really anxious today, I can't wait, this is going to be great? <laughs> it's not always a voluntary sort of thing, is it? And so how would Jesus command us, why would Jesus command us uh, this of us. I think if we look carefully at this passage, I don't think he's commanding us in a sort of uh, drill sergeant sort of way. He doesn't uh, come in and say, pull yourself together, get over it, just, just be happy. That's not what he says at all. Instead, if you look carefully, what you see is that Jesus is going to kind of get underneath the surface here. He's going to reason with us there's a sense in which we'll get to see Jesus here 
Jesus, the great physician, showing us some uh, surgical precision in, in dealing with the anxious human heart, which we all have, by the way, in one, at one level or another. Jesus is saying, let's talk about this. Let's think about this. Let me, let me remove this for you. Now, I certainly don't want to underestimate the complexity of this monster of a condition called anxiety. But even more so, I don't want to underestimate the words and the teachings of Jesus either. Because he does seem to be clear about some things in this passage, I think. First of all, one thing I think Jesus is saying is that you and I, we need to remind ourselves continually just how little control over our lives we actually have and just how much control over our lives our, our Heavenly Father has. Think about this. Fundamentally, what, what is anxiety? Anxiety in many cases, perhaps most cases even, comes out of a desire to control that which is beyond our control. We seek and we strive to control things that are uncontrollable to us. When your doctor comes in to give you some really bad news, when your boss comes in with really bad news, when a family member calls with really bad news, anxiety, it, it spikes and it, and it strikes. Why? Because we begin to feel that we're losing control. But the truth is that bad news, that bad news is only revealing the illusion that you've been under all this time, the illusion that you've been in control at all up until now. We get anxious when something unexpected happens because we feel like we're losing control, but we're not actually losing control because we never had it in the first place. The incident is merely revealing your true condition that you've always been out of control, that you, you've always been vulnerable. You've never been keeping your life going. You, you've never been in charge. So first, Jesus says you're living under an, an illusion of control, and it's making you anxious. And second, he says the reason this is happening is because you're not, you're not thinking clearly. What Jesus says in this passage here is that anxiety, it is not only a psychological condition, it is a, it is a theological condition, at least for those of us who call ourselves Christians. In verse 28, what does Jesus say to those who are anxious? He says to those who are anxious, you of little faith. Your faith is wavering, he says, and it's causing you problems. So Jesus seems to be saying that anxiety is a, a faith issue, a trust issue. It's a pattern of thinking that has become detached from the word of, of God. Jesus also says in verse 30 here that worry and anxiety, that they are worldly. He says that's what people do who don't know God. He says don't be anxious about tomorrow. That's what the Gentile world does. Now, it is possible that some of you may not be entirely comfortable with some of the things I'm saying here. You may be thinking, Jeff, you're being simplistic and naive that you can't explain anxiety so easily. It's far more complex than that. 
And to that I would say these are not my words. These are Jesus' words. This is not my diagnosis, it is his. And I do not believe he is, he is naive. I believe he knows more about this than we do. And he knows how to fight it. And it is, it is a fight to be sure. And this is why I believe as we continue through this passage, Jesus is going to be very much establishing our, our, our baseline weaponry against this problem as Christians. Sometimes one weapon works, sometimes another. And he's giving us one of the most powerful weapons to use in this fight. And so we, we put it in the armory, right, with all the other weapons, and we, we use it. We use them. But if that is a big part of the problem, according to Jesus, if anxiety for the Christian is a struggle with unbelief and with unclear thinking about God, what is the solution then? How do we get back to thinking clearly again? Well, in this passage, Jesus says that in order to begin thinking clearly again, you first need to begin thinking in verse 24, Jesus says, consider, consider the ravens. In verse 27, he says, consider the wildflowers growing in the fields. He's saying, look around, consider your heavenly father, ponder who he is and, and what he's like and how he works in your life and in this world. He's saying, think. Faith is not passing peaceful thoughts through your mind. It's not turning your mind off. Faith is thinking. Anxiety at times is a, a lack of thinking or a breakdown in thinking. Faith is thinking correctly about your God. So Jesus says, consider this, consider that. And sometimes what you need to consider is who's kind of driving the conversation in your head in the first place. Often what brings anxiety in the first place is that you're sitting there listening, passively listening to yourself, listening to your heart kind of run off at the mouth. You're lying in bed, you're listening to yourself, your heart is saying to you, this is going to be a bad day, I can't handle this, it's too much, what am I going to do? Your heart is talking to you and asking you to consider the wrong things. Sometimes you need to stop listening to yourself and you need to instead start talking to yourself. Start speaking truth to yourself. You say to yourself, I'm not going to consider these wrong things, I'm going to consider these right things, these true things. And Jesus in this passage is going to give us several right things and several true things to consider that can help us in our battle against anxiety when it, when it strikes. The first thing that Jesus gives the anxious heart to consider is the birds of the air argument, right? Verse 24, consider the, consider the ravens, he says. And he gives two premises and then a conclusion. Premise one, God is so completely in control of the natural universe that he may be said to even feed the birds of the air. 
Every berry eaten, every insect snatched from the air, every worm pulled from the ground is provided to them by God, Jesus says. He does that for the birds. Premise two, how much more valuable are you to him than the birds? Conclusion, your heavenly father is in control and you are not. And your heavenly father cares. And so you can surrender control of your life and Submit to his control, his sovereign control and his sovereign care. Do you know how to use this argument on, on your heart? A second thing Jesus gives the anxious heart to consider here is the flowers of the field argument. Verse 27, consider the wildflowers. God's sovereign rule over the natural world, it extends to the seemingly insignificant colors of wildflowers. This sounds the same as the birds of the air argument, but it's not. It's different. The point there is that you are valuable to God. He cares. The point here is that while these incredibly beautiful wildflowers are here today and gone tomorrow, you are not. You are eternal. And the inference for our souls is this. If God is so intimately and lavishly involved with grass and flowers which are fleeting, how shall he not care for his children who are, who are eternal? And so trust him, you of little faith, Jesus says at the end of verse 28. A third thing Jesus gives the anxious heart to consider is that anxiety accomplishes nothing. He says in verse 25, can any of you add one moment to his life by worrying? If you then are not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? And the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6 adds to that conversation when it says this. It says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, it says there in Matthew. And so that's a pretty simple, practical argument to consider. Anxiety is useless. Preach that to yourself. I'm accomplishing nothing helpful by this worry. It is only making a hard situation harder. It does not help. Something else that does not help is reaching into tomorrow, bringing its troubles into today. Each, each day, he says, has its own appointed troubles, but there are there are new mercies available each day to each of us to help us face those troubles. So trust your heavenly father that those mercies will be there for you. Finally, a fourth thing, or rather a, a fourth, fifth, and sixth thing actually that Jesus gives the anxious heart to consider is that, is that your heavenly father knows what you need, verse 30, and then as we're about to see, he will supply what you need, verse 31, and he delights in doing so, verse 32. So Jesus is asking us to consider these things, to consider the ways in which your heavenly Father is in control and you are not. Consider the way in which your heavenly Father loves you and cares for you as his beloved son and his beloved daughter. Consider his providential work in your life, the ways he's been working things out and working things together in your life all along. 
And consider, too, what he promises that is coming beyond this life. Because when you do that, when you trust his promises to you about your future, you come to realize that the very worst thing that can happen to you in this life will only serve to usher you into the very best thing that could ever happen to you for the rest of eternity. One of the most basic and bottom line defenses against anxiety and one of the best sources of fuel for confident and content living is that in Christ you are eternal, you are immortal, and death is gain for the Christian. Death is merely a meek deliverer into a a far greater reality. So consider this, he says, consider this, consider that, think it through. You've got this. Your heavenly father is with you. He is for you. He is sovereign and he is good. Okay, so far we've talked about how seeking the kingdom requires sacrificing your own earthly kingdom. It requires surrendering control of your life to your Heavenly Father's sovereign care. And finally, we see, too, that seeking the kingdom of God does actually involve storing up treasures after all, just not on earth, but in heaven, right? Storing up treasures in heaven. Listen to the final few verses of this passage. Jesus says, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourself that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we're back to treasures here. The first part was pretty rough. Jesus said, you're a fool if that's the main focus in your life, to store up earthly treasures so that you can kind of take it easy. And so there he said, don't store up treasures. But here he says, do store up treasures, but of a a different sort, of, of a heavenly sort. The language there in verse 33 is kind of peculiar, really. He talks about making money bags that that nothing can destroy, that will be an inexhaustible treasure in heaven. In Matthew's parallel account, it's put uh, a little more simply, I think. It just says, don't store up treasures on earth for yourselves, but instead do store up treasures in heaven for yourselves. So storing up treasures in heaven, what is it? What does it mean? How do we do it? Well, if storing up treasures in heaven is the opposite of storing up treasures on earth, then it would make sense that storing up treasures in heaven is not storing up treasures on earth, but instead giving away treasures on earth. Storing up treasures in heaven means sacrificing your kingdom of self in order to advance the kingdom of God. Storing up treasures in heaven means being more concerned with giving resources away for for God's glory rather than accumulating resources for your glory. 
It means at times being hazardous and even reckless in our risk-taking generosity for the glory of Jesus Christ. In verse 33, Jesus says, what matters more than your possessions is advancing the kingdom. How? He says, through loving generosity extended to those who are in need. He says you need to love and serve and give to the, the helpless and the hopeless and the homeless. This is how you store up treasures in, in heaven. In Luke chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus says, tells us to, to give money away to those who can't pay us back. And then he tells us why. He says you'll be blessed. He says you'll be blessed now. And get this, he says you'll be repaid later. In other words, when you give freely and generously of your time and your talents and your treasures, because you trust that Jesus will take care of you, you are laying up treasures in heaven, and he says you'll be rewarded accordingly. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, getting rewards in heaven, but I'm I'm pretty certain it's going to be pretty good. Something seems to happen with a generous heart that increases its capacity for joy, not, not only now, but also in the, the age to come. All right, so let's take a step back and, and think about this passage as we finish up. In this passage today, Jesus seems to present to us two ways of living, doesn't he? You can live a life that seeks and serves your own kingdom, or you can live a life that seeks and serves God's kingdom. You can focus on storing up valuable things here on earth, or you can focus on storing up valuable things in heaven. Jesus seems to say one is unstable and will make you anxious, and the other is indestructible and and will bring you joy. Some now, more later. But we do face a bit of a dilemma here, don't we? Is it really one or the other? Is there some middle ground here at all? I think many of us, if we're being honest, would have to say we, we're somewhere in between the two. We want to be generous. We want to live generously for God's glory and for God's kingdom, but we need to plan and prepare for the future some too, don't we? The Bible says there's some wisdom in that. We do have kids to think about. We have college to think about. We have our 401k to think about. So, so how do we do this? How do we, how do we find the right balance in this? How much do we give away today and how much do we put away for tomorrow? This is something that each one of us needs to approach humbly and honestly. We need to wrestle with our own hearts about this. We need to wrestle with God about this. This is a heart issue to be sure that I would encourage you to be very prayerful about. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24 says something helpful, I think. He says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Of course, all of us have both, though, don't we? 
We have money. We have some money. But we also have God. We love the Lord. We, we want to honor him. Jesus doesn't say you can't have money and have God at the same time because we can and, and we do. What Jesus says is you can't serve them both at, at the same time. So it seems the question we need to be asking ourselves this morning is which one are we, are we, are we really serving? And it's a question, I think, that we should be asking ourselves often. Are we using what God has given us in our lives to serve our kingdom or to serve his? And what do our decisions about money reveal? What do these decisions reveal to, to our God, to one another, and to a watching world about who and what we are truly serving with what we have? So I could stop there and I could tell you you're not doing enough. You need to be more generous. You need to be less greedy. Why? Because Jesus said so. And he did. And he does. The problem with that is that you'll never become a more generous person by being told to be more generous. You need a deeper motivation. And I hope you have one. The real motivation for me to live a generous life for Jesus is based on the generous life that Jesus lived for me. Think about this. Jesus was rich beyond belief. He had all the treasure. He had all the status. He had the honor and the beauty and the glory. He was ruling and reigning in a kingdom beyond our imagination. He had everything. But there must have been something that he treasured so much, he was willing to leave his kingdom behind. There must have been something he didn't have in heaven that he treasured so much, he was willing to leave it all behind to come here and to, to get it, and that's what he did. And so what was it? What could he possibly have treasured that much? Of course, it was, it was you, and you, and you, and me. He left it all behind. He was born into poverty. He, he lived homeless. He had nothing. He went to the cross to die in your place for your sins. Why? So that you could be his treasure. So that you could share in his heavenly treasures forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And so when you see the remarkable and radical generosity of Jesus, when you, when you see him giving up everything that he did to make you his treasure, that is the only thing that will ever begin to, to make him your treasure. And the more you make him your treasure, the more everything changes. It's the only thing, I think, that will allow you to loosen your grip on the treasures of this world and begin storing up more and more treasures in heaven. Because suddenly money just becomes money. It's not treasure anymore. It's, it's not your everything anymore. It's just money because you finally found the one treasure, the, 
the true treasure that you've been looking for and all those other treasures you've been seeking. It seems like a really good place to stop. I really want to stop right there, but I think I need to close like this. How much then is enough? How much should you be giving away? How much should, should I be giving away? I think you should be giving so much away that you, that you feel it, that it, that it hurts. There's a sacrifice, there's a cross involved, so to speak. But the Bible, of course, does give us a baseline, doesn't it? The Bible talks about how we should be giving at least 10% of our money to charity, to the poor, to the church, at least. And so does that seem unrealistic to you? Does that seem outrageous to you? If you say that's crazy, I have other things I want to do with my money, I would say then, he is not your treasure. He might be someone you believe in, but he's not, he's not your treasure. If he was your treasure, you'd have no trouble giving away an awful lot of your money and spending far less on, on yourself. I'm sorry to be so frank as we finish up here, but I think, I think it's what this text demands. And you know what? You can do it. And it will bring you joy, some, some now, more later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Jesus, thank you for your generosity extended toward us as sinners in need of a Savior. Thank you for this passage. Would it challenge us? Would it convict us to examine our own hearts today? to evaluate our own generosity, generosity today and to be changed by the radical generosity of Jesus today. God, would you make us a people who are seeking your kingdom in the ways Jesus tells us in this passage. Make us a people who are reckless in our risk-taking for the glory of Christ as we live out our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.